0: Finally, if you would like to support the work and ministry of Rehope financially, you can do so online at rehope.co.uk slash giving. We pray you find this message encouraging, enlightening, and helpful. Enjoy. Friends, I want, I want so much goodness for you. I want God's goodness to just pour over your life and whatever your circumstances. So I'm going to start by blessing you again. I'm blessing you in the name of Jesus. So here we go. I bless you now in the name of Jesus that you would know Jesus more wonderfully today. I bless you to receive healing. If you need healing in your body, in your mind, in your emotions, in your spirit today, I bless you to receive whatever guidance from God you need, whatever help from God you need immediately. I bless you to have the courage and capacity to flourish and prevail over whatever challenges you're facing in your life right now. And I bless you to feel hope and joy and love, and peace, whatever's going on. I bless you with that. In the name of Jesus, may it be. By the way, I do believe that blessings often follow obedience, and so often just getting the right things right, the basic right things right with God. Uh, I want your life to be blessed. I want your life to be blessed. And I know 100% that God's blessings and goodness can pour over your life, whatever your situation is between you and God right now. Uh, even, even if you're as distant as... It, I know God's goodness can, can meet you in that space. Generally speaking, though, uh, those who are walking uh, intentionally in step with Jesus, uh, they, they get a, receive the goodness of God's blessings in a much more frequent way. Anyways, we're continuing our study with Abraham. And he is God's friend, and today we come to potentially his greatest, most improbable triumph uh, when it comes to just kind of looking at the stories of his, of his journey of God. Again, the, the blessing of God that's pouring on Abraham means real things happen that wouldn't normally have happened. That, that when we're talking about God's blessing, we're talking about incredible concrete realities that take place because of of God's blessing in in our lives, improbable results because God is blessing. And again, that's what I want. That's what I want for for all of us, for, for all of you. So last week we were in chapter 13 of Genesis and we read about how Lot and Abraham were too prosperous. Uh, What a challenge. So they were too prosperous, and so they had to go separate ways, and so Lot chose, he he took a long look, it said, and he chose the plain of the Jordan as, as his domain, and Abraham stayed in the hill country, and we talked about how basically Lot is a righteous man. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 8, Lot is a righteous man, and so But something terrible shifts in his life when he separates from Abraham. So he had been journeying with Abraham, God's friend, who has this blessing and promise of God. Abraham, also a righteous man. And when they were together, Lot experienced great prosperity. But then they separate, and and Lot goes from Abraham, that, that environment of faith, to Sodom, an environment of evil. And now, Lot doesn't change. He's still a righteous man, but he is now in an environment of evil, and being in that environment of evil, even though he's still a righteous man, he his his life starts falling apart. It is, it's such a tra- scary, tragic journey that starts the second he separates and goes from Abraham and being connected with Abraham, the man of faith, to what looked good with his eyes, but going to a place of evil. So, Again, it's terrifying. We're just going to see a little bit more of of the fall of Lot in this story. There's going to be more uh, to come. Don't worry. such a scary reality. But anyways, I'm picking up in chapter 14 uh, of of Genesis. So he's just gone to, Lot has just gone to Sodom. It says this in verse uh, verse 1. About this time, war broke out in the region. King Amraphel of Babylonia, King Arioch of Elisar. King Kedralamer of Elam, which is Persia, King Tidal of Goim fought against King Bera of Sodom, King Bersha of Gomorrah, King Sinab of Adma, King Shemember of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, also called Zor. The second group of kings joins forces in the Sidim Valley, that is the Valley of the Dead Sea. For 12 years, they had been subject to King Kedralamer, but in the 13th year, they rebelled against him. One year later, Kedralamer and, and, and his allies arrived and defeated the Rephites at Asheroth-Kernaim and Zuzites of Ham. Double Z, that's cool. The Emites of shavak and the Horites of Mount Seir, as far as el Peron at the edge of the wilderness. Then they, re, they turned back and came to En-Mishfat, now called Kadesh, and conquered all the territory of the Amalekites and also the Amorites living in Hazazon, Tamar. Wow. I'm going to take a break on reading for a second. <laughs> History note here. History note. Remember Abraham. He was born in Ur. And we talked about how Ur was the capital city of the Sumerian Empire. Zalask, is on the Persian Gulf, prosperous. He was born there. He was raised. He lived there uh, while he was young. I mean, maybe into his 60s. I don't know. Uh, but he was for a long time. And then he felt, well, he, God appeared to him and called him to leave, to go to the land he was born. Now, he, he doesn't just leave. All of his extended family leave as well. Remember, his father, Terah, and all their family, uh, living family, go as well. They leave Ur of the Chaldees. Now, check this out from history.com. Okay? This is what we see in history. So what happened to summer? We're always asking that in Scotland, but this is, this is different. So this is uh, the Sumerian Empire. In 2004 B.C., during Abraham's living lifetime, okay, Abraham is alive. He's, li- he's older. He's older at this point, but he is living still in 2004 B.C., In 2004 BC, the Elamites, the Persians, stormed Ur, his hometown, and took control. At the same time, the Amorites had begun overtaking the Sumerian population. The ruling Elamites were eventually absorbed into the Amorite culture, becoming the Babylonians, and marking the end of the Sumerians as a distinct body from the rest of Mesopotamia. So this is my Bible geek coming out here. So you, you've got again Ur. The fall of Ur takes place during Abraham's lifetime. I don't know if Terah and family saw, could see the demise coming. That maybe they could see the Elamites um, and rising and becoming more and more powerful in, in the region or wherever, and they thought maybe it's a good time to leave. I don't know exactly what's going on, but I see that there is world events happening in the context of Abraham being called out of Ur and that happened during his lifetime with his home, his birth city, right. And when I look at this list of kings that we're reading about here, you have Kedrulamur of Elam, okay, that that Persian king. I know in Abraham's lifetime, Elam is going, Elam, 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 is going to, uh, Persia, is going to take over and, and destroy Abraham's hometown. Home city, Ur, and, and just bring an end to the Sumerian Empire. I know that Persia is on the rise. I know that Babylon is on the rise. That these, these empires that had been under the Sumerian uh, impact, like things are shifting. And you can see in this moment of time that there, the, the Persian influence and the Babylonian influence, it is reaching all the way to, to the Holy Land all the way to, to that area. Again, the Bible is true history, and you can see these little comments in the Bible that are that are very much reflecting some very epic things going on in the world today, or in, in the world that day. Uh, I apologize for the sloppy map you're about to see. I should work on it, I should work on it, but hey, here we go, sloppy map. When it comes to this story, I want you to have two things in mind. Number one, um, the further an enemy is coming, the worse that means. So you've got these little red squared areas. I'm so sorry. The small one, the purple dot is kind of where we're at, Jerusalem area. You know, the local baddies would be like the Philistines or the Moabites or things like that. They don't exist currently at this moment of the story. But the, in that area, we read about them. And that's bad. But even worse is it like the second kind of step back, you know, Egypt or Arabia, the Midianites or something like that, people coming from a bit further away, but then if you get to like farther than that, it is such a terrible situation when you've got nations like Assyria or Babylon or Persia or Rome, Coming from so, I mean, in order for them to have an impact in the, in this, the Holy Land area, you, they're coming from, so, their, their reach and their might is so powerful. And so in this story, you've got four king, baddie kings named. You've got uh, the king of Persia, which is the purple circle on the farthest left. And then Babylonia in, in the, the next one there, that area. They're coming from so far away. And then two other kings, which we don't know where they're from. So I just put a bunch of purple question marks just to make the map more clear. No idea. I've seen a lot of proposals. I also put in a, in a purple square box there, um, Ur, Abraham's home city there. But, but these guys are coming from so far away. And you just kind of read it quickly in the story, but they come over and then they wipe out all of the area I kind of highlighted in orange, right? Nations. There are nations there that they are just quickly just wiping out in that whole east side. Not the part that God gave Abraham, but the whole east side of the Jordan, and they just quickly take them out, right? Again, it's as a s- also geeky history Bible note, they're coming, they're wiping out that east side. Lot's descendants are going to come and fill in the gaps. They're going to inhabit the areas that this army is kind of wiping out. But anyways, that's just, that's just fun. History, Bible, yay. Sorry about the sloppy map. I'll work on it. Okay, so they've easily taken over the east side. Let's keep reading. What happens here? So then, the rebel kings of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, and Bela, also called Zor, prepared for battle in the Valley of the Dead Sea. They fought against King Lamor of Elam, uh, King Tidal of Goim, King Amraphel of Babylonian, King Arioch of Ellasar. Four kings against five. Doesn't quite capture it. Uh, four, like, mayors versus Persia and Babylon, but still, it sounds... Four kings against five. As it happened, the valley of the Dead Sea was filled with tar pits. And as the army of the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into the tar pits while the rest escaped into the mountains. The victorious invaders then plundered Sodom and Gomorrah and headed for home, taking with them all the spoils of war and food supplies. They also captured Lot, Abram's nephew, who lived in Sodom and carried off everything he owned. Now, I don't want to overplay this comment, but there is a, a sentence that Jesus says that kind of it's so applicable in so many aspects of my own life and thinking, and I find it, maybe I, I overapply it, maybe not. But in Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Against all kinds. So, sometimes greed is obvious, but sometimes it's, it's subtle and it's, it's sneaky. And you, know, you could look at Lot and he, he looked with his eyes and he chose the valley for himself. He didn't worry about the spiritual ramifications. He just looked with his eyes and, and that's how he made his decision. Here, I'm looking at these foreign invading kings. I'm like, man, if they would have just been content with total victory. If they would have just been content with all the loot. All the sheeps, all the goats, all the stuff, all the gold, all the silver, all the loot. Did they have to take the people? Had they just not taken the people? I doubt Abraham is going to do what Abraham does. But, but, but they do. And again, it is, maybe it's a sneaky form of, of greed. It's hard to tell because sometimes when, when greed is normal, it's hard to distinguish between, between what's really going on there. So they they capture Lot, and then we read this in verse 13. But one of Lot's men escaped and reported everything to Abram the Hebrew, who was living near the oak grove belonging to Mamre the Amorite, and his relatives, named Eshcol and Anner were Abram's allies. When Abram heard that his nephew Lot had been captured, he mobilized the 318 trained men who had been born into his household, he, then he pursued Kedralamer's army until he caught up with them at Dan. There he divided his men and attacked during the night. Kedralamer's army fled, but Abram chased them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. Abram recovered all the goods that had been taken, and he brought back his nephew Lot with his possessions and all the women and other captives. Okay, friends, this is an incredible upset. It's an an incredible upset. When most people look at this passage, they think, wow, look at Abraham. 318 warriors in his nomadic tent community. That is a lot. Like, that's a lot. That's a lot. That's a huge. uh, Abraham really is a significant person as a nomadic herdsman tent person. But that is nothing compared to Persia or Babylon or Persia and Babylon combined and two other somethings combined. Like it is so insane. This is one of those teeny tiny armies versus these massive empire moments in the Bible. Kind of a Gideon moment if you know what I'm talking about. But, but, but so there they go. And, and so Abraham goes with his warriors and his buddies and their warriors his local buddies, again, this is a, the most improbable victory and upset. Map, again, terrible map. I, sh- I should have done a better job with this map. Uh, Dan, where the battle starts to take place, is actually just so just north of the, the dead sorry, the, the Sea of Galilee, which is the blue dot kind of top middle. just above that is a basin, the Hula Basin. it's, just, it's a little bit it's like a weird, lighter area straight up from Galilee. Dan is at the top of that. So the battle starts there, and then they chase them past north of Damascus, which is the green dot, and they recover the loot. I'm going to work on my map skills, guys. I like maps. If you're new here visiting, I, I, I rushed that one again. Anyway, so clear military upset. Maybe one of the most shocking victory moments in Abraham's life. And there's something that gets seen here, not just about Abraham, but about Abraham's God. And, and you, you see that Abraham's following God and God is blessing Abraham, and that results in extremely obvious results and impact. That, that God's favor isn't just something that's just kind of out there, but there's is, there is vi- improbable victories because of God's favor. He's actually helped by God. And so then we we read this last section here, and it says, after Abram returned from his victory over Kedril Amor and his and his allies, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shavah, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, the king of Salem, and priest of God Most High, brought Abram some bread and wine, which makes me think of communion, but it's not. It's just, I don't, that's not an intentional connection, I don't think. It's just there. (laughs) Melchizedek blessed Abram with this blessing. Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has defeated your enemies for you. Then Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all the goods that he had recovered. The king of Sodom said to Abram, give back. My people who were captured, but you may keep for yourself all the goods you've recovered. Abram replied to the king of Sodom, I solemnly swear to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, words of Melchizedek, that I will not take so much as a single thread or a sandal thong from what belongs to you, otherwise you might say I'm the one who made Abram rich, God did, I will accept only what my young warriors have already eaten and I request that you give a fair share of the goods to my allies. In her eshkel in memory. Just quick map. <laughs> I know. It's great. They're following the blue line. They're coming down to Jerusalem, which is the red box there. S- the kings of Sodom have come up. Lime green arrow there. We're just there at Jerusalem. He's going to the blue circle area. But we're in that red, red box area, Jerusalem, in that area. And we come across this guy named Melchizedek. Who's Melchizedek? He shows up in Hebrews. He shows up in Psalm 110. He shows up here. He's the king of peace. His name means king of peace, king of Salem. He is the king of of righteousness is what his name means, or king of justice his name means. Melchizedek. And and, and of whom the Bible says is is a king and priest of God most high, which is shocking. Remember, the Canaanites are so deeply worshiping these evil demon Canaanite deities. What is a, someone who even knows about Yahweh doing here? Like this, Abraham's going here because of just the awful demonic pra- uh, worship practices and yet all of a sudden you come up with this guy named Melchizedek who is a priest of God most, like Abraham's God. Like, like, like who is this guy? I mean some. A few people, not many, in Jesus' day, they thought that, some of them thought, you know, this guy's so special and so unique and a big deal here that he must be an angel, maybe even the Archangel Michael. And so you see in one Dead Sea Scroll that being written, it's not like a big common thought. Most people thought, you know, this is a real person, so who is he? Josephus, who is a historian and a Pharisee, a historian and a Pharisee, and he lives and writes kind of... About the time, you know, like the book of Revelations being written by John. Like kind of in that, in that time period um, sort of day. So he, he writes that Melchizedek is the founder of Jerusalem and its first priest. Like Melchizedek started Jerusalem. Okay, maybe. Uh, most of the Jews believe that Melchizedek was Noah's son, Shem, who was on the ark with him. You're like, is that even possible? Yeah, you can have the genealogy fun maths time. I'll I'll save that for you. But yes, Shem would still be alive at this moment in Abraham's. Wow, that's just hard to think. But yeah, uh, it would still be alive according to the Bible timeline, which is the only one I follow. And so you, you you look at that sort of a thing, and then they would say, well, then that would make sense. If it's Noah's son, then that means this is Abraham's oldest living relative. And how priesthood tended to work in, in that society is the, the oldest of the family was the priest of the family, and, and at whatever sphere and level that is. So, okay, you've got Shem, and, and being priest of God most high, what's he doing there? Well, Shem was, in chapter 9 of Genesis, connected with Yahweh, same God as Abraham, and Noah blesses him, saying something like, may Yahweh, the God of Shem, be blessed. So you do have that sort of connection there. Um, there, So the Jews, they think that he's, Shem is, is Noah's son, founder of Jerusalem, and, and priest of God most high, the one that Abraham gives his tenth to. Other options, Melchizedek is a guy named Melchizedek, <laughs> who happens to be the king at the moment, and a priest of Yahweh there in, in Jerusalem. This is what the New Testament says about Melchizedek. Says this, consider how great he was. So consider then how great this Melchizedek was. Even Abraham, the great patriarch of Israel, recognized this, how great he was, by giving him a tenth of what he had taken in battle. Now, the law of Moses required that the priests who are descendants of Levi must collect a tithe from the rest of the people of Israel, who are also descendants of Abraham. But Melchizedek, who was Not a descendant of Levi collected the tenth from Abraham, and Melchizedek placed a blessing upon Abraham, the one who had already received the promises of God. And then this is what what really captures it here. And without question, verse 7, the person who has the power to give a blessing is greater than, speaking about Abraham... Greater than the one who was blessed. So you've got this guy, Melchizedek, who the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, is stating very clearly, whatever we know about Abraham and being friend of God, Melchizedek is greater than. Like, what? Who is is this guy? This guy is a big deal. And again, you might now be like, oh, because I, I listened to your two minutes there of that, Brian. I now know who Melchizedek was. No, no, no. Like, I, I don't, we, we don't get dogmatic about that stuff. What's true is true, right? It's true is true. He is who he is, right? Uh, Melchizedek is just, just that. Um, maybe it's the Jewish thing. Maybe it's just whatever. The main thing is we, we need to know here that Melchizedek is a really big deal. And, and that's pretty shocking. Okay, the main flow of the chapter... Powerful army, led by these massive, powerful, uh, glo- global, or regionally powerful empire places. They come in and they they take over. They wipe out the nations on the east side. And they take out that whole area. They kidnap Lot, Abraham's nephew. Uh, and they, they start taking them away. But Abraham and his friends go and uh, are surprisingly victorious because God helps them. And they capt- recapture everything, and they bring it back. And on the way, they meet Melchizedek, and Melchizedek blesses them. And he blesses them with these words. In, and I just want to remind you of these words. Melchizedek blesses Abram with this blessing. Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has defeated your enemies for you we know what really Abraham you strapped on your sword great but what happened God most high defeated your enemies for you then Abraham uh, gave Melchizedek a tenth of all the goods he'd recovered it wasn't Abraham's tiny force of warriors or his brilliant strategic thinking better than all the generals of, of Babylon and Persia and those other question mark places God helped Abraham. God defeated. God helped them. And so, my question for us, maybe a very important question for us, is how do you say thank you? How do you say thank you to God when He helps you? How do you say thank you? To God, when he helps you, I mean, surely you've you've prayed. You've prayed in your life and you've asked for help for an exam. I know I sure did every time. And it was a miracle I passed, right? Uh, but but I like, asked for, you know, God's help. Maybe a project at work. God, please help me with this project at work or a conflict situation that you were feeling miserable in. or, or like, God, help me in this relationship situation. Or maybe you asked for a job and, and, and God gave you a, a job. Maybe you're asking for another job and, and, and all that sort of thing. But, but God's helped you and he's provided for you. Maybe you asked for wisdom or insight in what to do in a challenging situation or for guidance and God helped you there. Maybe you asked God for a miracle or, or something like that I'm sure that in your life whether you believe in God or not at some point you've asked for help God if you're there help me maybe even like God like send me to a, a church we're well here you are answered maybe maybe you're in Royston and, and you're like God give us another shop front and finally God provided in answer to prayer how do you say thank you how do you say thank you? Well, Abraham here, how does Abraham do it? Well, you see that he says thank you by giving 10%. That, that's, that's how Abraham does that. That's how he says thank you to God. Is that the normal way to say thank you to God? Or is that just what Abraham does? Is, is this just a, just a story, or is this consistent? Well, you, you look through the Bible, and you're like, oh, this is the normal way that God even instructs his people how to say thank you. I mean, yes, he set up the, the the temple system and the worship system where you would bring not 10%, 20% they would bring to the temple uh, every year to 20% to say thank you for God's provision, whether it was much or little for the year. That was their thank youness. But then God provided, as you all know, because you read um, Leviticus because you go to a great church, uh, you also see that when somebody really wanted to say thank you, how did God instruct it? Well, he had a very specific, here's how you say thank you. And it's thank offerings. That's how you say, thank offerings. That, that's how God directed uh, thankfulness. It's like God's love language is offerings. Uh, as offerings. And, and yeah, we see it there. Nothing says God most high I see and acknowledge that you have helped me, that you've helped me this year, that I've, you've provided, that, whatever, that you are with me, and I am thankful. I wish some things were different, but I am thankful, and so I'm thankful, and so I bring to you thankfulness like Abraham, my father of faith, does. And I bring my first 10%, not the 20%, but the first 10%, and I say thank you. Now, I want to sneak an awkward comment in here, one that I I I, I couldn't figure out where to put it because I, I don't want it to dominate this chat, but it, it has to be said, so I'm just going to subtly <laughs> slide it in uh, as much as possible. Giving, giving your offerings to church is a way that we say thank you. Okay, it's a way we say thank you. Not giving an offering or giving... A, Low offerings. Fact check this. Just read the book of Malachi. It's only four chapters. It's going to take you two minutes. When when we don't bring our offerings, God has feelings, and he's either going to feel thanked or he's going to feel robbed. That's the word that he uses, and he's he f- he feels upset at his people because they're robbing him. Now, I, I again, I don't want to have that be the dominant thought, but like this isn't just like a neutral thing with, with God, like like. He, he wants us, and he shows us how to be thankful, and, 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 and yet it's an emotional thing. So I want to just kind of just have that there. It has to be said. It's part of, part of this whole chat, but let's just, yikes, put that to the side for a second. Because I understand that giving 10% is a real thing. Yikes. It, 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 it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a real thing. I know I do that. That's what I do. And, and, and sometimes I think, man, what, what could we do if I, if I just lowered that percentage to zero or to 5% or, or whatever? How, how That would really be helpful right now. I'm sure that we've all had that thought. And I say to myself, man, I, you, could, you could have more and it could be a little bit more comfortable. But Brian, you got to be on guard against all kinds of greed. And that's just one of them. And that's just one of them. And, and also, Brian, don't you want to be someone who gets the right things right? Like loving people, like Bible prayer offerings. You know, it's kind of those basic things. I just want to be simple in my priorities. I'm not going to get everything right, but just be some of the basics. I'm not, I don't want to overthink these things. Just get the basics right. And I want to be someone who is continually expressing thankfulness to God in a way that he says, this means thank you to me. And I've heard people's reasons not to give, and, 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 I, and I'm sure you have as well. Uh, I remember this guy told me that he didn't give to his church. It wasn't this church, to a different church. He didn't give to his church because he disagreed with the direction that church was going and how they were spending money. So he didn't give. And I'm like, yikes. Have you heard about Jesus who brings his offering to the temple knowing and having articulated that they are going to murder him not only that knowing and articulating that for the next decades that the people who run the temple are going to be hunting down and hurting his people even to the point of death and jesus is like bringing his offering in that context Okay, so you've got some disagreement. It's our job to bring our offerings in obedience, and God will hold them in account for how they they spend it, whatever church you're part of or whatever. Uh, Just want to throw that out there. It's our job to give. Some people might say, My offerings are too small to make a difference. And I say, Your offerings aren't about impact. Stop being so strategic. Your offerings are about thankfulness, not impact. It's not about what kind of difference it can make. It's about you and your walk with Jesus. Some people are like, my offerings are too much. and It's not all needed, so I'll just just reduce that down again. uh, we're, We're called to rightly steward, whether much or little, and it's our job to walk with Jesus with thankfulness and it's, and it's up to, you know, wherever the money goes for, for them to, to deal with it. Just don't overthink this stuff. The enemy winds us up on all this stuff, especially when it comes to money. I, or I'm the only one. But he, he winds us up. And some people say, oh, my church doesn't need it right now. Like you know. Uh, some say, you know, I'll give once I start making this much money or once I reach this financial goal. Like, man, read the first chapter of Haggai. Read the book of Malachi again, like it doesn't work that way. God just sets it up where his the blessing and trusting him with the blessing it turns out way better than our strategic thinking I will hold back and do it my stuff first and then get to the God's stuff later. when it comes to offerings, I've heard it all right I'm sure you've, you've heard it all too. all the reasons for not giving for not I, I, I heard a pastor once say that he didn't give this is not me. He didn't give because it didn't make sense. I mean, it came in from the church. Why give it back to the church? I'm like, it's not. A, what? You're an idiot. I mean, anyway, I mean, I, 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 man. Look, if God brings you to a church, he brings you a church to help you, to teach you, for you to be loving the people there in that church, but also to give to it, to, to support it, to worship and to say thank you to God for, for all the pieces there. It's not going to be perfect. There's no perfect church. But, but that's just how he says it up. Uh, do I care about offerings going up in this church? Honestly, I kind of just assume everybody's doing that. And it's fine. Like, I'm, I'm assuming that, but I, but I really care about you. Would I, would I like offerings to go up? I, fine. But I really, really, genuinely, genuinely care about you and your walk with Jesus. I want good things for you. I want your favor of your life. And, and you know I care about you you know every week I'm praying for you, I'm blessing you, I'm, I'm just calling on God for, for goodness over your lives and, and for everything like that, usually, this is a general, usually, not a promise, usually God's goodness and blessing pour over those, the lives of those who are getting the basics right. Usually. That includes those who know how to say thank you for God and to acknowledge it in the way that God set it up to be acknowledged. So, my challenge today is very simple. I did it myself this week. Uh, Review your giving and make sure your giving is up to date with God's current provision for you. I did that this last week and I was like, oops. I was 27 pounds short. I, I was, extra money came in this month, praise God, and I looked at it. I was like, "Wow, 27 pounds short. Oh sh- shoot!" So, uh, uh, thank you for what a great challenge, Brian. Great, and so I was able to adjust and, and put in an extra 50 pounds, just in case more comes in. You know, that sort of a thing, and just just to be safe. Just, but I'm just saying, just check. Hopefully, you're right. You're great. But if if it's true, this idea that God hears, thank you, when our giving is good then just, just make sure that you're living a life that's expressing that in the way he hears. God, God sees you. He is helping you. God has helped you. And as you say thank you, may God bless you as he does Abraham in his life. Okay, I want I to pr- have a prayer time here for a moment here, but I, I want to lead you in, 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 in this prayer time. So why don't you just close your eyes for a second. And... And I'm talking about God as the God who helps. What do you want God to help you with today? If you could ask God to help you with something in your life, ask Him right now, because God helps. He does help. Whether you're far from God, whether you even believe in God or not, He helps. He hears you. Ask God right now. God, here's this situation, here here's this thing. Help me. Whether it's guidance or direction or provision or... Help me. I also want to remind you that in the past, whether you see it clearly or not, God has helped you saying everything's good and, or it's been great, but there there is, God has seen you and he has helped you. Look back and express thankfulness in your heart here. Just, God, thank you. I, I acknowledge that you, you helped me in that moment or in that moment. And while you're there with God, and you've asked Him for help, and you've expressed some thankfulness, why don't you just, while you're there, just be like, God, I, I do want to be a man or woman who gets the right things right, who loves people well, who loves Your Word, who prays, who, who says thank You with my offerings. Like I recommit to getting those, the right things right in my life. So not making excuses anymore. And maybe you're here and you're like, I have not even, I haven't even started this journey with God. But you know what? Today I want to take the first step and I want to commit my life to following Jesus commit my life to obeying him, I suggest praying something like this. God, here I am. I now commit my life to following you. Jesus, I believe, I will follow. Forgive me. Help me. Fill me with your spirit. And lead me in your everlasting way. In Jesus' name, amen.